Good evening, film fans. What's up? Welcome into the Second Day Film Podcast. It's the official podcast of the Second Day Film Club. I'm your host, Brandon Champion, joined by my fellow savants of the cinema, Evan Dean and Mike Nichols, on Wednesday, November 10th, 2021. Super happy to be here, film fans. Uh, We got the gang back together. We've got some awesome films to talk about. Uh, Mike Nichols is here joining us from the Lone Star State. What's going on, buddy? You staying busy down there? Yeah, keeping busy, watching movies, missing you guys, uh, hoping for cooler weather. Uh, Thankfully, it's been a little bit cooler here in Texas. But yeah, I do kind of miss the Michigan Falls where, you know, it's just a nice hoodie weather. I miss that stuff. Yeah. The two weeks of Michigan fall. It's already starting to get a little frigid up here in Michigan. Uh, Evan Dean is also with us from the Sunshine State. What's up, man? So good of you to join us again. Uh, Apparently, the one show a month pace was just a little too stressful for you. It was. Yeah. You know, got to tone it down a little bit. Got to, uh, you know, got to keep it on the pace with the uh, listeners. Now, everything's going well. Getting a little bit of a cool spell um just like texas you know we're down we you know we were down in like the 60s at night right now so a little chilly but uh, things are good i'm i'm you know staying connected to my michigan roots by following along with the spartan football team which is having a fantastic season so i'm still trying to you know enjoy my saturdays uh, as a spartan fan sundays you know not not too worried about that team up in michigan uh, obviously I don't- I don't know what team you're talking about. Uh, So uh, coming up on today's episode, we will be reviewing several films that have come out uh, both in theaters and on streaming. Uh, If you're listening and you enjoy the podcast and you like hearing us three sort of ramble, uh, please give us a rating or review or check out our Facebook page at Second Day Film and check out our old episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Um, You know, if you guys have been listening, we've been doing this for a few years now. Uh, You know, nothing too serious around here. We're just three guys who really love uh, film and we love kind of digging deeper and talking about it more. Um, So, you know, we just kind of uh, do this for fun. But, you know, we would love to develop a bigger following as well to reach more people, because, you know, if there's one thing I've learned about when it comes to talking about film, uh, it's always better to get as as many perspectives as possible. So um, we love we love talking and we love hearing from you guys. Um, very much. So, uh, let's get into it guys. We got a busy show today. We've been, uh, reviewing or watching things, uh, as much as it takes a long time for us to get to the show in between breaks here. Um, we've been watching a lot of things. We've been going to the theaters, returning to the theaters. Um, and it's been fun. So this first one, we did not have to go to theaters for, um, and it's actually three films in one. It's on Netflix. It's the fear street trilogy. Um, and this is a, 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 trilogy of horror films based on rl stein's book series of the same name uh the story revolves around teenagers who are looking for a way to break a curse that has been in their town for hundreds of years and this uh it's told in three parts fear street part one 1994 fear street part two 1979 or 78 and fear street part three 1666 they were released uh i think in over three weeks in july so um, we meant to do this as part of like a sort of Halloween episode, but never got around to it. So now we're approaching Thanksgiving and talking about Fear Street. Um, but we're not going to break each of these down individually. We're They're basically one story, one extended film. Um, so we're just going to sort of talk about this in parts. But Evan, you're the horror aficionado here. Um, so what, what did you uh, like or dislike about the Fear Street trilogy? Well, at first, I think you're right in that you have to take it as three films. You know, Mike watched the first one, and we know Mike's not a, a horror fan. Um, I, I wouldn't watched, say I'm a, I watched all three of them. I know you did. I know you did. Uh, but I'm getting to my point here. I uh, I don't know how to call myself an aficionado anymore, but Mike's not a horror fan. And after the first one, he's, you know, texts us complaining, you know, that there were some plot holes and unanswered questions. And I'm thinking, this is a part one, Mike. Have a little patience. Um, just as I expected, some of those plot holes and some of those questions were answered. I will say, um, you know, of this trilogy, you know, the first film, as it's aptly uh, takes place in 1994, is like a direct homage to Scream. Part two is like a direct tribute to uh, Friday the 13th, takes place in 1978, you know, the 70s, 80s slashers. And then part three I think is where we finally start to get um, a film that establishes a little bit more of an identity 
And I thought the third film was the best. I thought it, you know, was it, you know, it was a bit more unique. Uh, it wasn't just a, a straight rip from the other, you know, horror films of the past several decades. And uh, all in all, I, thought, I liked it a lot. You know, I thought it was um, good, not great, but a fun story that takes, you know, about four and a half hours to ultimately reach its conclusion. Yeah, I agree. There's definitely, you can definitely get a, uh, um, you definitely sense the tribute to all the different mm-hmm. sort of horror genres or the horror films of the past throughout it. Uh, I think it's sort of a, just sort of a fun horror romp, you know, um, I, but it, it really just felt kind of run of the mill to me, just sort of like one of these, you know, trilogies we can throw up on Netflix and people in, I don't know, families can enjoy it. Cause I think they're all rated R cause they are very, very gory uh, yeah. films, but, to me, like maybe this is because it was told in three parts, but and because it was channeling all these different genres, but the tone sort of felt all over the place in these films for me. Like one second you're, you're you've got like this sort of campy like slasher, like this guy's chasing this girl around in the mall and she sort of dies in a comic comedic sort of it's obviously horrendous, but it's sort of comical. And then in the third one, you've got like this crazy Puritan like where there's actual like cinematic, like horror that's actually off putting uh, like the church scene, for example. And so like, I guess I was like trying to figure out like who this movie was actually made for, because it wasn't made for families because little kids can't be watching this, but at the same time it felt juvenile at points if you're going for a fully adult audience. So, uh, you know, I thought it was fun enough to watch and it was entertaining enough. Um, but just like every once in a while I'd have to check myself and be like, wait, what the heck is this movie really going for? What, what, what are we watching? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think that might have something to do with the time periods in which each part was taking place. Um, because, you know, obviously Scream, which the part one, which you're referring to is a direct tribute to Scream is all about poking fun at itself, poking fun at the genre. Right. And so I think there's some of that, too. I mean, that that's the basis of that entire series. Um, you know, and again, when I say a good, not great, um, I'm not giving this like high marks when compared to the rest of the films we watch. I think, you know, horror it's rare when a horror film rises to a level of where it's um, critically acclaimed. Obviously these didn't do that. Mike, you're not into horror at all. You probably, uh, you know, slogged through these four and a half hours, huh? Yeah. So I have to, I think everyone who's ever heard our podcast knows horror is just not my thing, which is fine. If it's your thing, like that's cool. Um, But I definitely like started to learn more. I felt about the horror like films like as I watched this like it was kind of humbling and it was a, it was a teaching moment for me and uh, I started to pick up that kind of what you guys were saying that I think like what Stranger Things with Netflix like with what they were doing with Stranger Things how it was like kind of like a tribute to the different mm-hmm. 80s like like sci-fi and horror movies I feel like that's what they were doing with Fear Street but for the horror genre so it was definitely like trying to be Stranger Things. I mean, they even have like, you know, one of the main characters from Stranger Things playing a main role in this. But I just feel like maybe the characters in Stranger Things are a little bit more likable and a little bit more relatable um, than some of these characters were. Uh, although it was kind of cool to see, you know, that they were throwing in some normalization for LGBTQ characters, especially for teens. And like that they were even kind of exploring that and like, you know, that that old Puritan era. I thought that was very fascinating. Um, but yeah, the movies definitely had different vibes for each one, you know, but I did kind of feel like it was all the cliches of like nineties, like horror movies and, and stuff, but without any of the actual fear, like there was never any point where you kind of felt real fear or intensity for any of this stuff. It was, it was just so highly stylized and the aesthetic, uh, was just so like hyper, um, neon like like all the lighting was just so <laughs> yeah. extreme in all these movies it's netflix's thing yeah that's netflix thing and that's fine like they're definitely building their brand um and uh yeah there of course there were like you know moments where i was just like what like what is this no logic like why is there no one in this hospital like the kids <laughs> are just being they're being chased around an entire hospital and like there's not a single person or where are the parents or- <laughs> yeah. Where, where yeah. are the adults in this world? They don't I mean, exist. <laughs> I think that uh yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I, I think that you the LGBTQ aspect of the film, I think 
that's where I felt like the third film started to be a bit more unique and original and rather yeah. than just a straight tribute. And that's why I like the third the most. But yeah, I mean, unlike a director like James Wan, who's got a good sense of how to create tension and, and how to, how to get your blood running and how to, um, you know, make, you know, have your pulse racing. Like you want a good, true good horror movie to do. Yeah, I agree. These didn't do that. Um, and you know, I don't know if even scaring was the point. I mean, I know it's a horror movie, but yeah. there's a lot of horror movies that don't actually scare. It takes, right. it takes a, a certain type of director with certain skills to create truly horrifying scenes and, and films. There was Michael, one line you I mentioned the, the... Oh, sorry. I was going to say, there's just, there was one line that I wrote down. It was exactly what you were saying, Evan, in the third one where they explored like the themes of you know, the two teen girls, like being lesbian in a town that didn't accept them. And uh, like kind of, kind of the, the, the darkness in that um, where, where she says to her, if they see us, like, you know, they'll hang us. And she responded, let them. I wasn't alive before tonight anyway. I was like, eh, that's a good line. I wrote that line. Down. <laughs> I really liked that line. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned the neons. Maybe that's why I use the word sort of like with the tone shifts, because like if you're talking about the third one specifically, you're talking about like this, like, like grungy, like. Uh, like calm palette, almost like shaded black and white colors of the Puritan stuff. And then at the end, you jump back into like the 90s Stranger Things. And then I know that's 80s, but early 90s, like yeah. neon, like mall. And just like seeing those two things in the same film, I think kind of threw me off. Um, I mean, I was getting I was getting reminders of The Witch, which is obviously set like in, in that Puritan I mean that yeah. you want to watch a scary film that that right there. I didn't really understand why they were all doing like bad Irish accents <laughs> when they were in the 1660 stuff. That was kind of lame. But one thing I I I think the thing I liked most about this movie was just like the way they did it, like the narrative structure where they sort yeah. of started in the 90s, went back through the camp in the 70s. I really liked you know that was my favorite one was actually the 70s one. I liked the camp one the best. I thought that was the most cohesive film. Um, but I like that, you know, we sort of like would would hear like a passing line in the first one, you know, about this camp. And then the whole second film was about us seeing in the camp. And then in the camp one, we would learn about stuff that happened in the 1660s. And then we would get to see that. So this sort of where they sort of told the story backwards and then we would got to see it. And the story sort of we filled in the gaps as the story went on. I thought at least the narrative structure was unique. And uh, I thought that was a, a strong point of the film. Yeah, I, also I would have one. I've got one personal connection to this film, actually, I found out. So an improv friend I made here in Austin, his brother is the stuntman who played the axe murderer in the movie. <laughs> yeah, his name was Kyle, uh, Kyle Zepernick. And uh, he actually apparently during one of the scenes, he the one of the actors got hurt when he was like doing things and he throws them off his body. Like, I guess it wasn't it was like an ankle roll or something not serious. But yeah, I, I was like, whoa, your brother was in the movie? Like, what was he? He was the axe murderer, right? And he goes, well, some people may call him an axe murderer, but he's just my brother. So, <laughs> so yeah, fun fact. I know the brother know. of the stuntman who played the axe murderer in this movie. I did appreciate all the the different sort of uh, styles of the killers they had where they sort of were just like, you know, the, obviously the whole point of the thing is that anyone can get possessed and cursed with with this curse. But um, and just to see like all the different people who become killers. I mean, that's I mean, that's realistic. I mean, you never know who's going to become a killer. And they all sort of had their different weapons of choice and styles. And when they're all coming at them uh, at the end, you know, it's kind of like, oh, look over here and you see Friday the 13th. Look over here and you see Scream. Look over here and you have Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's like almost like you're, uh, you know, you're in the the Jack Skellington forest in Nightmare Before Christmas. And it's like, which door do you want to open? You know, which world do you want to go down? Because they're all right here. So. I agree. I think maybe the, that this is really just about a tribute, Mike and, and Evan, you both sort of said it, but you know, along that stranger things line where you just have these different aspects of horror throughout the years that sort of are molded into one story. Um, and you know, it's not, not great, but entertaining enough to, to pass. I gave it a six out of 10. Yeah, I went and um, <laughs> I gave the first one film a six, the second film a six, and then I gave the third film a seven because, you know, to do six, 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 that just wouldn't be uh, that'd be too fitting. But I did. Beyond think that, brand, yeah. 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 Right. But I do think <laughs> the, the the third was barely, barely reachable of a, a seven, but um, maybe a six and a half. But yeah, it's right around that, you know, good, not great, but watchable. 
Yeah, I give the whole thing just like I'll give it a B minus. Yeah, I was at six for the first one, six for the third one, six and a half for the uh, for the second one. So I guess that averages out to about a six. So that's Fear Street. All three are on Netflix. Really accessible. Uh, yeah, just don't get confused and start with the 1666 one. Uh, the first one is the 90s, and then it goes back in time. So just don't get that mixed up uh, if you're trying to check these out. Um, so from from uh, that to one of the big blockbusters uh, that we've been waiting for for a long time. Uh, this movie was in development during the pandemic. I think it was going to come out during the pandemic. It kept getting pushed back. Uh, and it's it's a huge one, man. It's it's the latest James Bond film. It's called No Time to Die. Uh, I believe this is the 25th James Bond film and the fifth and final outing uh, for Daniel Craig as the fictional MI6 British agent James Bond, one of the most famous film characters of all time. Uh, in this film, James Bond has left active service. His piece is short-lived when Felix Leiter, an old friend from the CIA, turns up asking for help, leaving, leading Bond onto the trail of a mysterious villain armed with dangerous new technology. Uh, Kari Joji Fukunaga directed this. As I said, Daniel Craig stars as James Bond. Fantastic cast here as well. Rami Malek is the villain, Lucifer Safin. Uh, Lashana Lynch, Ben Winshaw, Rory Kinnear, Billy Magnuson. Uh, Ana de Armas, Leah Sadu, Ralph Fiennes, Naomi Harris, Jeffrey Wright, Christopher Waltz. Um, so really, really solid cast here for this uh, final go around for James Bond or for Daniel Craig as James Bond. Uh, Mike, I went to the theater to see this. It was one that I was really looking forward to. You know, I, I really I'm not what you would call like a huge Bond guy, or at least I wasn't. Um, but probably like two, three years ago, I realized that I had a severe blind spot when it came to James Bond movies. Like I hadn't seen hardly any. Like I remember playing the GoldenEye game back in the day um, on, on N64 or whatever. Um, and I I've obviously know about James Bond, but I hadn't seen like any of the films. And so I went back and made it a point and watched every single James Bond film in order. Um, all the way back to the the days of, you know, our boy, uh, uh, why can't I think of his name right now? Who's the original? Sean Connery. Sean Connery. Yeah, Sean Connery. All the way through all the Bonds, watched them all. So uh, I was all caught up, really excited to watch this. And uh, I have some thoughts on it, but I'll, I'll toss it to you first. What are, Give me an initial thought um, on <laughs> James Bond, No Time to Die. It was a very ironically named film. Uh, considering that spoiler, this is the movie where James Bond dies. Uh, it was. <gasps> oh my god! You can't reveal. kill James Bond. They kill James Bond at the end of this movie, and he's he's definitely dead. Like there's not a uh, like there's a death scene, and uh, that was very uh, kind of surprising. Uh, and again, the film is called No Time to Die. Um, but yeah, I thought uh, you know if we look at the, the Daniel Craig, James Bond series, like I think Craig series has done the most in terms of um, kind of that, that world building for bond. I mean, all the other bond films, they, they, they came and they did their thing. And then James Bond just kind of continued with the new iteration, but this one started tying the bigger picture all together in terms of like, you know, the Aston Martin, it, you know, the, obviously other movies did have the Aston Martin in it sometimes, but this one almost, made it seem like it was the old original car and that it was still like somehow part of MI6. And then, you know, uh, in this one you see not only we get a new M, but then the old M is still up on the wall. And then even before her, you know, we see the other M uh, who was part of the other franchise and you start realizing, Oh, this Daniel Craig bond series is actually kind of like making the entire bond franchise. One continuous story with new James bonds just coming through, you know, the legacy of it all so the fact that they decide to fully go full into well then i guess this this james bond is going to have his ending his death his death scene will be shown on screen um that was interesting that they kind of took that direction with it and uh you know they really did kill james bond uh finally we did finally get to see a james bond death which i thought was um i don't know kind of groundbreaking um that like one of the all-time Hollywood like action star heroes like finally dies in his 25th film. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, since you went right to the end, we'll start there. I mean, 
yeah, that I mean, was an emotional gut gut punch. That was an emotional thing. gut punch for me watching that. Like I, I was watching it and like, you know, I have loved the Daniel Craig, you know, uh, James Bonds. I think as an action hero, he's been as the action aspects of James Bond. I think Daniel Craig has embodied it better than any other Bond. I thought Pierce Brosnan was was honestly a really good Bond when it came to like the suave, uh, you know, sultry, like hitting on lady Bond. But in terms of an action hero, Daniel Craig has been the most physically uh, capable and, and yeah, best sure. Bond. And he's really made it his own uh, throughout his run as the character. Um, you know, he, he obviously inhabits inhab- all of the, the classic traits of James Bond. You know, he likes his drinks shaken, not stirred. He, um, you know, he drives the Aston Martin. He, you know, we have the John Bond, James Bond, of course. But he just felt like sort of more like rough around the edges and sort of like, um, you know, like you said, there was this this bond of, da- of Daniel Craig was its own thing. It was very much felt different both in tone and in terms of the storytelling that was going on through the through his run um so i I guess like if you want to talk about like um you know killing off james bond and you know as far as moving forward with the series it's almost like he made this version of james bond his own so much that it's almost like he probably did need to die with his take on the character do you know what i mean like we need to either like like and we can talk about where this is going to go in the future um whether they reboot it that's kind of my theory that maybe they'll just reboot the whole thing and we'll get a new james bond and it's just a new universe um with a new character that's that's a theory i have maybe they go in a a completely different direction i'm not fully on board with female james bond i I don't think that that's a good way to go um but you know I just think that it makes sense to, to sort of kill off this bond with this iteration because it was so unique. Yeah. And, and yeah, props to Daniel Craig. He's done a great job. Uh, there were some terrific action and fighting sequences throughout his career as bond, but especially in this final one um, it's, it's a solid action movie just in terms of when you're, you know, watching a film, you're watching some pretty, you know, intense choreography, some incredible like car stunts and, you know, everything was just really well done. And he did a great job, especially like for his age, like Daniel Craig is, you know, an older guy now, like he's uh, what, uh, like 53 or something. And he's still like, you know, falling downstairs, taking punches. And I'm sure there's a lot of stunt work there being done behind the scenes, but it's, it's not easy to do. So props to him. I think he was a great bond. Uh, and yeah, this movie um, did give, it gave you good action and it did deliver on kind of like the bond equation with, you know, Bond girls and cars and a, a martini shaking that stirred and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it, it also introduced the element that now Bond is a father. Uh, his daughter uh, drives off with Madeline Swan, his mother or her mother. And uh, yeah, so it's it was kind of a good ending to Daniel Craig's Bond. I will say, though, I had one kind of complaint about this film. And I was I thought the villain was a little less than satisfactory. I, I think Rami Malek did a great job with what he was given. I, I just think it was a villain whose motivation really didn't have much depth to it. And also like, like the guy was like, Oh, they killed my family. So now I'm going to, it's like, wait, so why would you then become the thing that kills your family? Like he actually, his motivation actually seemed like it, it should be the opposite of what drove him. And, uh, <laughs> Also, like the fact that he and Bond never meet or have real any real interaction with each other until until the showdown at the end. And then he's the one who kills James Bond, you know, and so that was a little that was a little disappointing to me. Um, I thought, you know, again, I think Remy Malik's a great actor and I thought he did a really good job with uh, what he was given. But I just thought the the plot here with with that character was a little clunky and um yeah, I thought like it, it was just a little slow there with trying to develop a villain and a, a reasonable plot. But, you know, all the action set pieces and all the, you know, character building kind of carried it through. And it was a fun film. Um, but uh, I yeah, agree. The villain the villain, was disappointing. I agree. The villain was weak. And I'm not I'm going to disagree with you. I don't think Rami Malek was very good. I thought that he was doing like this weird, they gave him like this weird mask thing to try and make him more crazy. And I don't know, maybe I'm just not a Rami Malek guy because I didn't like him in that The Little Things movie we we reviewed earlier. Like he just not a Rami Malek guy. I just don't, I've liked, I like guy. 
I don't think he's good. Like he that little weird that weird shtick that he does in his acting, like it worked for uh you know the when he played uh what's his place Freddie Mercury. I loved him in that, but yeah, it just comes off as like a weird like shtick to me. It doesn't like he doesn't seem to have that much range. Like I it was as like he was like being just like a creepy guy just for the sake of being creepy. So I agree. I, I agree on that, and I I just I didn't I thought it was a weak villain. His motivations were weird, so I, I agree on that. But you know, you whatever. Know what the, Good. You know, you know I, what I'm that not, weird shtick is that he does? It's called acting. No, I, yeah, but it's the same thing in every movie. It's the same thing. Like it's just, it's not. I'm not feeling it with him lately. But whatever. I'm whatever. We don't need to. We can agree to disagree on that. We, uh, we you know what? One thing I I I think you said something interesting where it's like. You know, this, this checks all the boxes, obviously. We get the gadget scene with Q. We get, you know, Bond, James Bond. We get the cold open action sequence with the extended credit sequence and a, a awesome ballad by Billie Eilish. You know, we always get the James Bond song, um, which are always just so, like, haunting and, and sweet to watch. Like, uh, the Bond formula is is just awesome, man. I'm glad that they they stuck true to that. But you got a wide variety of, of action set pieces. You got the, you know, the globe trotting around the world. They're in Jamaica, they're in Norway. They're, you know, they're all over the place in this movie, which is what they're in Cuba, which is what we love about James Bond. But you get like stealth bond, like when they're in Norway and the ferns and he's taking people out, you get like the huge action set piece at the end in the submarine silo or the nuclear silo, you know, you get the, the hand to hand combat fighting in, in Cuba. So um, action was great. Uh, and I think the thing that I love most about this bond, because like, I don't think it's the best of the Daniel Craig's like, uh, you know, that's obviously a high bar casino Royale. Amazing. Um, Skyfall, I think is my favorite all time bond movie. Um, so I wasn't going to touch that. Um, so I don't know if this was like the most ambitious bond movie and I don't think it was like the sleekest bond movie, but what it felt like to me was sort of like a tribute to the Daniel Craig era more so than some big conclusion. I mean, obviously we get a big conclusion because Bond dies, but um, I don't. I wouldn't say this is like an end game in that it's like it's not like Avengers End Game where it's like the, the end all be all to everything, where like the stakes are are so high that it's amazing. I mean, Bond dies, but it definitely feels more like it's it's just like sort of tributing all the different aspects of Daniel Craig's run as James Bond, and the film feels like it's conscious of that of the of the fact that this is James Bond's last ride. And I think, you know, Kari, Joji Fukunaga and the, and the filmmakers were really just conscious of this is Daniel Craig's last ride as this iconic character. And we're going to make sure that we hype that up whenever we can. Yeah, I definitely agree with all that. I, I gave this movie an A minus. Uh, I gave it an 8.5 out of 10. Really liked it. Uh, I thought it was a very, um, you know, proper, uh, and respectful send off to Daniel Craig um, and credit to him for making a, an iconic character that's been played by iconic uh, actors before him, his own, and uh, really enjoyed the run as, uh, as James Bond. Where would you put this one in uh, Daniel Craig's? Uh, where would you rank it? I think uh, I would go for his movies. My favorite is uh, Skyfall. Then it's probably Casino Royale, then this one, then Quantum of Solace, then Spectre. I would be the same, except I, I, I think I would have Spectre ahead of Quantum of Solace. But they're all they're all pretty solid films, and uh, it was a great run for sure for for Mr. Daniel Craig. Uh, who would you like to see play Bond next, though? That's always the hot topic. I got an email today that said Tom Hardy is still the betting favorite. Um, I mean, I really do. Th- I mean, he might be a little old for it now, but I think I, I just Idris Elba would have been a fantastic James Bond. Um, yeah, I think that I I'd be know. cool with. A, I'd definitely be cool with a black Bond. I'm down with that. I, but I just think Idris Elba was too old at this point. He kind of missed his window. They got to find that, someone else. What about that guy from? Uh, I mean, Henry Cavill would be good, uh, but he's actually already Superman and stuff. So maybe I don't know. But in The Witcher. But what about that guy from Bridgerton? Uh, Renee something I think his name is Renee Page something. I was thinking <laughs> the guy German. who I was thinking the guy who played um, uh, the Manta villain in Aquaman, Yaha Abdul Mateen the second I think is his name something like that. He was in Watchmen too. Uh, I really oh, like okay. him. He's a young African American actor who's you know buff and seems to be able to play the action hero part. I was thinking he might be good. Um, I mean I, I would definitely be cool with a, with an African American Bond. That'd be that'd be cool to see. Um, Reggie really... Jean Page I think that's his name. 
there you go. Uh, I really do think we are heading towards a reboot here because I don't, I don't, I, I don't know. I, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, what do you think they would do? Do you think they would actually like go back and put Bond like in World War II, like in the like original Ian Fleming stuff, or do you think they'll? Ooh, that would. Like... I feel like you're getting into Kingsman territory there if you do that. But uh, uh, I mean, I would watch that. I'd watch the shit out of that. An old timey Bond with Sherlock Holmes era Bond. That'd be pretty interesting, actually. Well, it's, I mean, I, in the original novels, isn't that isn't that where they're set in? They're set in like World War II and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they've been making Bond movies since the 60s, so we've seen him in every single scenario basically through the years. Like, I was getting like Moonraker vibes and uh, Thunderball vibes, big time Thunderball vibes when they were in that in the silo at the end, uh, because I think that's the one that takes place in something similar. But that's what, that's just what I'm talking about. There was tributes to all sorts of Bond films uh, throughout this this Daniel Craig uh, final hurrah. So, and I think that was very purposeful. It'll be interesting to see. I think we're gonna. I don't think we're gonna be seeing another Bond though for five, about five years down the road here. Uh, so they're they're probably gonna have some time to figure out where they want to take it. Uh, I mean, there are some some seeds planted in this film where I guess they could move forward with it, but I don't know. I, I think the best bet would just be to sort of scrap it and start over. But I mean, I guess we'll find out. And we'll see. Um. All right. Let's keep moving along, shall we? Let's uh, red light, green light. Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> back to Netflix for our next review. Uh, it's a mini series, a Korean mini series. Back to Korean cinema. We know we love Korean cinema on this podcast. Uh, if you want evidence, go back to go back and listen to us gush about Parasite <laughs> that came out. Uh, <laughs> I think Mike, you, we both had it in our top ten of the decade, didn't we? Yeah, uh, we so, both did. Yeah, yeah so freaking awesome movie um this 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 uh mini series was created by wang do yuk i'm sorry if i pronounced that wrong i tried you think after listening to you know nine episodes of a korean uh mini series i'd be able to you know pronounce the names a little better but whatever uh hundreds of cash strapped players accept a strange invitation to compete in children's games inside a tempting prize awaits with deadly high stakes a survival game that is a whopping 45.6 billion dollar won prize at stake uh not dollar one which also confused me when they kept saying you know 45.6 billion one I, I thought they kept saying like one like money one uh but apparently that's the koreans uh currency so that's just me being a stupid american uh but this show man was setting records on netflix getting all sorts of buzz um, I mean, everyone and their brother was watching. It. it was one of those shows. Netflix just seems to have a way where they get these series that just be, go viral, you know, a la Tiger King or whatever. Um, and this is the latest uh, super phenomenon, they, I guess you could say. Um, we all three saw this. I actually just finished it up uh, before we started recording. But Evan, give me a thought on Squid Game. Um, yeah, I mean, ha there hasn't been anything this big uh, since Tiger King. And I mean, really, I think this... Uh, you know, this has been even more popular than Tiger King, and it's obviously uh, it has a lot more to say. You know, I, it's funny. You, you go online now, you go on Twitter, Facebook, uh, and daily you'll see some sort of Squid Game meme or Squid Game re reference. I mean, it's incredible how this show came out of nowhere to really, uh, you know, to really have such an impact. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that the, you know, I think that the question of why it was so addicting and why it was so fascinating and captivating, um, you know, I, I think there's probably different answers for that. Um, but I think the, the, obviously the, the most impressive aspect of the show is what it's trying to say, right? I mean, we're talking about just a complete scathing criticism of capitalism. I mean, you've got these billionaires at the top who are literally having people compete in deadly games um, for their entertainment. And these individuals, as a part of this game, are all financially strapped, struggling to get by. And they're literally having to chisel away at each other just to get by while the fat man at the top uh, does it simply because he was bored. Um, as we learn towards the end of the film. Um, so it does not have nice things to say about capitalism. It does not have nice things to say about wealth inequality. And uh, it's not uh, subtle in delivering that message. Um, I thought it was really well done. Um, you know, it was dark. There were some moments where it is dark. Uh, 
it is, you know, captivating. Um, and in a way it's, it's almost become used for jokes. Like I said, memes, you know, the, the red light, green light girl, uh, the meme of the guy in the room with like the face looking so tortured, looking up like, <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I don't know. What do you guys, I've said a lot. What do you guys think about this made it so captivating? I mean, I, I think that, you know, on a surface level, it's, it's just that it's super violent and yeah. wildly entertaining. I mean, yeah. like just the concept of, of all these people, you know, basically being like in a rat race to the death is uh, i mean it's just it's entertaining to watch and then you have these children's games that you know I, th I think obviously everyone in korea is super familiar with these games but you know we have variations of these games in america as well and um you know just to see like these these innocent games played by children in the schoolyard turned into murderous saw-like torture traps <laughs> yeah. uh, is is just intriguing i mean it's 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 hard to watch at times it's an unflinchingly brutal this this show and um, I think that's the reason people are drawn to it on a surface level and then if you're people like us who like to think deeper uh, I mean the social commentary of classes and capitalism is obvious you know uh, I think the the final episode when the old man's talking about how the similarities between rich people and poor people like in a demented way where both can never be happy but obviously for very very different reasons is interesting I mean we see in like episode seven I think is when they first bring in the VIPs and they're all like fat uh you know white guys from abroad and they're watching you know these koreans kill each other and we're meant to believe that oh it's just you know scathing uh you know criticism of capitalism in the in you know in america or in in you know countries like that but then we find out at the end that the korean guy is the one who's running the damn thing too so it's it's mm -hmm. not just about america and capitalism and greed it's about sort of that worldwide capitalism and greed among amongst countries that operate in that sort of way um and i think that was very purposeful and so so not only do you have the surface level entertainment but you also have these deep ideas going on um and i think that that's that's sort of what drew people to it i don't know what do you think mike yeah um i think there's a couple things that make this show really entertaining one is that it starts out with very relatable themes you've got everyone who's poor and I think all of us are, have, are, are, are kind of relatively poor or we have student loans or we're in debt. We're not like, rich. I think, Let's put it that yes. way. I think yes. the, major, the majority of the world kind of feels, especially during a pandemic, the majority of the world feels kind of poor right now. So I think right off the bat, the fact that it's a, a, a story where poor people are being set in like a struggle to survive for, for cash. Uh, yeah, like that's that's pretty relatable. The next thing you have is that the challenges that they're going through are a series of games. And you know what? Like sports are big because we we like watching games. And so mm -hmm. here's a here's a show all about a game. OK, it makes us kind of want to watch and see who's going to win, what's going to happen. And, and then the fact that these are, are relatable games, they're children's games that all of us would have played, whether it's red light, green light or, you know, in South Korea, it's, it's that like cookie game um you know or tug of war like these are all games that we would know and play so it's like relatable and then it forces you to kind of rethink about it it's like yeah but like how good could i play that game with a gun to my head literally a gun like a gun to my head um so it's interesting to think about like oh these games i played it as a kid you know would i still be good at it as an adult and also would i still be good at it as an adult like if there was a gun to mm -hmm. my head it just it just forces you to think about these interesting you know, kind of like threatening ideas. And then on top of it, you throw like a little bit of a plot twist with certain characters and um, and you have then people you're rooting for that you want to see what the outcome is. And just that kind of morbid curiosity of, geez, what's going to be the next horrible thing? These, you know, poor people. Right. And then like, I, I know, I, and I don't know if anyone else did this, but like I started asking friends who were also watching it like, Hey, which do you think would be the game that would get you? Like we started kind of comparing, like, which do you, which game do you think you would die first in? And we were all kind of like, we would probably die in all of them, but all of us were like the bridge game for sure. Like oh, where they yeah. have to cross the grass. It's like, oh yeah. It's because it's just luck. It's just yeah. luck. Yeah. You don't know what's gonna happen. Exactly. I mean, I, yeah. I, I liked what you said, Mike, about how like it was uh, you know, like relatable to us being the pandemic or people right now, because like like it this has like when they're on the island and they're in the thing, like I was 
it does have sort of like a post-apocalyptic vibe to it or like where it's like this i mean hunger games is the obvious you know example that you could think of but like you know for obvious reasons it feels that way but i think it's even more terrifying because this isn't post-apocalyptic you know it's taking place in the normal world that we live in in korea and so like it's it's like this is this is something crazy that's happening amongst an everyday setting and and literally in the narrative of the show you know the second episode they quit and they all go back to their lives living a normal life and they realize that they're trapped and they have no other choice and they feel so desperate that they literally go back to it and it's just like jarring or terrifying i guess to think that like you know this something crazy or some coup doesn't have to take over you know this could function within our normal society and that's that's crazy to think about yeah yeah i mean i I will agree you know i think that you know i couldn't help but find myself just wanting to know what the next game was right i mean it was so captivating and i think it you know i doubt it was inspired by saw or the hunger games but those were two wildly successful franchises and there's 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 a feeling of that each of those types of uh, films in here um and and i guess now we're going to get a a part two or a a a second season i I was doing uh some reading and i found you know those people who can't can't enjoy anything without complaining who have now said the irony of squid game and its criticism of capitalism is it's now being (laughs) it's now being you know you know, it's being turned into something where people are making big, big, big money off of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. which is ironic. Uh, maybe capitalism always wins. But, um, I, you know, I'm interested to see where it's going to go for sure. I, I'm surprised, Evan, that you're not mentioning so another movie that this made me think of. And it's because of sort of like, uh, I just love the idea that like they're like on this island facility. Right. And like the design of the place where it's just like these endless mazes and stairways and passages Cube. and like. Yup, there you go. That's the one I was thinking about where they're like sort of trapped in this endless torture game where they just feel like there's no way to get out and they're just constantly wandering through and they're playing the classical music like this has happened a million times before. And it's like this system that has gone on forever. I I feel like that whole vibe. I mean, it's very purposeful. They every time they go to a game, they're showing them marching through that strange, colorful corridor. And it really helps create like this intense cholesterophobic atmosphere. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't even think about that consciously. I think maybe subconsciously that was, um, you know, cube uh, cult, cult classic sci-fi horror film. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you're, you're talking, you know, cube hunger games saw these are, you know, some of my favorite, um, you know, kind of dystopian, uh, but not horror, but not sci-fi, but not, um, these are some of my favorite series and it's got a little bit of all that in it. And for some reason, uh, you know, people are really captivated by <laughs> these deadly games. I don't know, like, you know, you know, there, there's been a lot of films that have been created and series that have been created working off of that concept. And many of them haven't worked, but when they work like this and you've got a social commentary as well. I think it can really be a big success and and it obviously has. Should we have been tipped off to the old man because he was numbers number one in the game? Like I, I feel like okay. there was a lot of hints in the in like if you went back and watched it, I feel like we would be getting a lot of hints about things. Okay, so I actually had a little early tip about the guy, and I'll tell you where it was. And this is a fun fact. So if you watched Squid Game and you watched it with the English uh, like voiceover acting. Which I did not. Yeah, I would actually recommend going and watching the red light, green light scene with the Korean um, because you actually don't hear the red light, green light. Like you hear a song. Yeah, yeah. so when i was so someone had posted on instagram they're like oh do you know the song and so i was just listening to the song for a minute while i was like watching that clip and it showed that clip of the old man kind of sneaking forward and be like ha like waiting to pause and there was something about that scene when i rewatched it that time for like just to just to hear the song i noticed i was like hmm this guy seems like like he kind of knows what's happening He's having way and, too good of a time. Yeah, he's he's having a good time. It's almost like he knows what's up. And right there, something tipped me off about this old guy. 
And uh, so I had my eye on him the whole the whole like show. And then when he finally died, I was like, well, he's dying. And then I was like, wait a minute, they're not showing it. Uh, and then I, I kind of wondered there and then I forgot about it until it came back to the end. And I was like, I knew it. Like, as soon as I saw him in the bed, I was like, I knew it. There was something up with that guy. What is it? So, yeah, I would recommend if you can watch that original uh, episode with the doll in the original Korean so you can hear the song. It's, it's kind uh, of like a charming little tune, even though it's kind of creepy in the moment. I, I would yeah. definitely recommend watching uh, just in, in Korean with English subtitles over the dub. I think we uh, I mean, whenever I, I think I made the same recommendation, like if you're watching uh, Dark, that German series on Netflix, the dub just throws me off, man. It, it's just oh, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. No one watches uh, the dub or no one actually. Uh, I think people the do dub, watch do the dub. I think people Ugh. I think the casual person does watch the use the dub. I mean, we're, I we're cinema people. I think that we want it in the original uh, thing. But I think a lot of people do watch the dub, unfortunately. But uh, what, what I gave this thing an eight. Would you give it? I gave it a 7.5. Um, yeah, I think I appreciated it more as time went on. Um, and I was able to kind of um, let it settle in, you know. But yeah, 7.5 is where I, where I ended up. I liked it a lot. And uh, I'm excited to see where it goes from here. Yeah, I, uh, I gave it an A. Um, I'm not necessarily, kind of like you guys, like I'm not necessarily crazy with what pop culture is doing with the show. But yeah. I think that uh, it was great um, storytelling for right now, you know, not just because it had like uh, a really good so like social themes, you know, I think it'll I think it will stand up there with like other other kind of like critical commentaries through fiction, like whether it's Hunger Games um, or like Mr. Robot um, played uh, by the brilliant Rami Malek. Um, but, uh, yeah, I also, <laughs> I, haven't seen Mr. Robot. I also do think so, that there was it. something, something that kind of really worked about this was that it was very original. Like, and I think that like, it showed like people are hungry for original content. I know like tentpole Hollywood blockbuster is based on famous books or based on comic books or whatever. Like, like, I know that that's like kind of where a lot of safe betting is right now for Hollywood producers, but this was an original story with uh, an all ethnic cast like it, it was and it was the most popular show on tv no one like these are not famous actors in our culture these are not like people who we know their names like and this is the biggest show that everyone cares about so i really hope that it does give the chance for not only more foreign films to come in but films that are more diversely cast and stories that are kind of you know originals um, because it shows, hey, people really do want that stuff right now. So props to this show for making that happen and now earning itself a sequel. Good, good for them. I give it a, I give it an A. Yeah. An a. And the more I think about it, Parasite had a lot of those class uh, themes in it too, actually. Mm -hmm. So yeah. this is clearly something that uh, you know we talk about this stuff all the time in America, but uh, clearly same conversations going on in Korea. If the cinema has anything to do with it or anything yeah. to represent about it, but uh, that Squid Game, it's on Netflix. If you haven't seen it by now, you're probably the only one. So <laughs> check it out. All right, let's move on. Last film we're going to review today, the granddaddy of them all. I know all three of us have been super pumped for this film. Uh, it's Dune. It's directed by the great visionary director, Denis Villeneuve. Uh, this film is based, uh, this is actually part one. It's based on uh, the 1965 novel of the same name by Frank Herbert. Um, this is the feature adaptation of Frank Herbert's science fiction, science fiction novel about the son of a noble family entrusted with the protection of the most val valuable asset and most vital element in the galaxy. Uh, once again, amazing cast in this. Timothy Chalamet, Rebecca Ferguson, Zendaya, Oscar Isaac, Jason Momoa, Stellan Skarsgård, uh, Stephen McKinley Henderson, Josh Brolin, Javier Bardem, Sharon Dunker Brewster, Dave Bautista. Um, so just just awesome cast in this movie holy crap i remember when this movie got announced and the the casting news just sort of trickled out over and over again and everyone's like holy crap when is this going to stop when are the amazing casting when are the amazing actors going to stop joining this movie um so it was awesome to see uh and this is one that i was just so so excited about uh i'll start with this one guys i mean i think the first thing that sticks out with this movie obviously it's based on iconic uh source material but it's it's visually one of the one of the greatest films i've ever seen and i don't i don't really think that's an overstatement i mean 
it's it's so awesome. It's so ambitious. This film has incredible scope. Like it feels big. It feels like a spectacle. And if you don't, and you need to see this movie in the theater if you can. And I think Evan, you you said that same thing. But like, just the the scope and what Villeneuve is going for in this movie to sort of give us this sense of grandeur and the sense that this universe has been going on for thousands of thousands of years uh, is incredible. So uh, I watched it once in theater, once when I got home. And uh, I, I appreciated it more the second time, but to see it on the big screen the first time was was awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know Mike, you saw it at home, um, and uh, man, you got to see this in theaters. I, I don't. I mean, it's probably not something you're going to do now that you've already watched it. But I agree with Champ. This is one of the best looking films I've ever seen. Um, I mean. The, I mean, he's hit it, you know, the scope, the, you know, I think that, you know, I mean, everything from the color, the scope, the, um, the little details, you know, when you're watching a film and it's being cranked out on a commercial level, like Transformers, then, you know, when you're watching a film where every single shot, not every single scene, every single shot, especially those transition shots, um, taking you from one scene to another. They're so intentional. They're so purposeful. They're so incredible. Uh, it was captivating. You, you would be just captivated just in them moving from one place to another because of how beautiful the landscape was. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the one of the things that Champ didn't mention yet is that is that this was uh this was not the first time Dune has been made into a feature film. Uh, the first time that happened was 1984. David Lynch uh, made uh, Dune. And when that happened, um, I don't know, we don't have to get into David Lynch too much, but when that happened, uh, you know, it was also revered for having some really like powerful, sticking, beautiful scenes, but the story was just a complete disaster. The pacing was a complete disaster much like Lynch tends to do. This story actually was strong. It was solid. Um, and it had those scenes, those visuals that you will not forget, but it also had a story that moved and a story that made sense. And given that it's only a part one, you know, we're just starting to get into some of the themes, um, some of the political themes, the social themes, the environmental themes. I mean, they're literally chiseling away at the land for their economic benefit. I think we're going to get into that a little bit more, but you know, yeah, I mean, just visually, this was a stunner. What'd you think, Mike? I, uh, yeah, I, I agree. Visually, this movie was impressive and um, it was clearly like, there was a lot of love for the, the book and the universe of Dune um, by, by Frank Herbert. Uh, I think all that goes to, the, to uh, I'm sorry if I say his name wrong, uh, Denis uh, Vill Villeneuve or whoever, the guy who directed Denis. it. Um, yeah, Denis. Uh, good job to him. Like This is clearly someone who loves this book, loves this story, loves this world that was created, and really just wanted to like do justice to the experience of that story. Um, and so he was going to take his time with it, which is kind of what this this one does like it is i know it's 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 it was released as dune but it's titled on screen as dune part one and this movie does very much feel like a part one mm -hmm. um in fact i would say the whole movie only kind of feels like a part one which is the one little thing i didn't like about the movie because like by the time we the, the movie ends you're like wait like it feels like the story is just kind of starting mm -hmm. but uh yeah like there's clearly so much love in building these characters taking your time with the world building relaxing in the world like exploring it like studying it um it's just so well crafted like I, I, it's weird to say it this way but the movie felt refreshingly slow like in terms of there wasn't like a lot of trying to force like pop culture references or you know witty banter like it just let the characters be the characters in their world and it kind of explored all the different like houses and the alliances and the powers and the spices and it and it did it all in such a steady paced way, um, which was kind of ref it was very refreshing to see that in a mm -hmm. big blockbuster that's going to be about this, you know, epic, you know, action book. And, uh, 
it was nice to see it take its time. Now, I will say, though, that whenever they finish this story, whether it's a trilogy or two films, like, I don't think this first movie is like is going to be as maybe exciting as other films or as other as other like like the rest of the story will get because it does like the whole movie is just kind of one giant world building experience almost. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually kind of surprised at how little like I don't know action there was. Most of the action sequences that you see are if in the trailer are really just envisions that don't actually yeah. kind of happen <laughs> in the plot, but. Um, but yeah, I was very impressed with how how well crafted and how well loved uh, this this narrative was told. I thought the director did an amazing job. It was a beautiful, beautifully rich story that he's that he's building. It's it's almost like it's just a big long prologue. I mean, you're right about that. Like, and we're literally dropped right into the story, so it definitely feels incomplete. Like it's only part one, but it, it doesn't really feel like there's a beginning or an end in this movie, right? Because we're just sort of dropped right into it. You know, they're throwing a lot of information at you. Oh, sorry. Lost the lost the uh, <laughs> the, the mic there. Um, but they're throwing a lot of information at you really quickly. So if you don't have like a, a great knowledge base of the source material, um, it could be easy to get lost really quickly um, because you're like, oh, we're on this planet. Then we're on this planet. Then they're talking about the Bene Gesserit. Then they're talking about, you know, this prophecy. And then the, the, the people on Arrakis have their own prophecy and there's just a lot going on. So if you haven't like read Dune, which by the way, I just started listening to Dune on audiobook and it's fantastic and I'm loving every second of it. And it's helping a lot to sort of give me that knowledge base. Um, so I think that's part of why it's a little bit overwhelming, you could say at the start. And it doesn't, but but it I I agree with, I like the way you phrased that, Mike, because it really feels like we're just joining this world that has already been going on for thousands of years and it's been lived in. And now we're going to watch these transcendent events occur over the course of these. I think it's just the two films. So, um, you know, and they do try and they do try and help you with that. Like they try and educate you. You get like Zendaya's little opening story, uh, you know, about the Harkonnens and Paul is watching like that National Geographic style you know, PowerPoint on Arrakis, like at the start of the film to try and, you know, fill in some exposition. So they do their best to try and, you know, fill people in uh, as, you know, feel like non-Dune fans in so they can at least get a, a, an understanding of the setting. Uh, but it it is a lot coming at you real quick. Yeah, I guess maybe because I'd, I'd seen the Lynch film, which again was, was not good. Maybe that's why it had at least some background because I didn't, I didn't feel like I struggled to pick up on it, but you're right. I mean, there's not, they're, they're a little bit more non-traditional in how they explain some of the places and the people. Um, yeah, Mike, I think you're right in that it's a slower film. There was my only real criticism is there was one point where I think it got just a touch slow. That's when Paul and his mom were in the, um, in the tent, uh, that, that little sequence, um, that totally to me, agree. Yeah, that to me was a touch slow when we're getting some of the visions and the the dreams. Um, But other than that, even if it was slow, it got away with it um, because it was so beautiful. I think if you're going to have a film, generally, when I see a film that is slower paced, uh, I struggle with it. This was so captivating. I mean, even even when they're introducing these, you know, even when they're doing the what would normally be a cliched scene in any sort of sci-fi action film when they're introducing the villains and they're making their grand appearance like the shots are so carefully constructed it's so looks so damn good um so but yeah i I think you know i I had to kind of step back once i'd seen it and and put it into context and in a couple films that compared it to was okay you've got infinity war and you've also got the the mocking jay part one right like some big films that were part ones and it's you have to almost keep that in context when appreciating it because both of those films as well felt um like you weren't getting a whole conclusive movie because you weren't um so that you know given that that's what it is um i'm not upset about it but yeah you know i I wanted to see it continue moving forward i wanted the movie to keep going and it's always tough when uh, when it ends like it has for some of these other big uh big franchises. Yeah. I'll add to the fact that it was beautiful. And, and, and a lot of that actually was the way he did slow motion. I remember thinking as I watched it, like it kind of feels like 
this director has nailed what Zack Snyder has been trying to do with slow-mo. Like Zack Snyder is known for doing a lot of slow motion in his movies. And yes, they're gorgeous epic shots, but sometimes they're just a little slow and they do kind of like stop the action sometimes with it. But I was like, man, the way this guy has actually captured emotion with the slow motion. I was like, like Zack Snyder has beautiful slow motion, but I don't think they always capture the emotion the way he likes it to. Justice League did a better job with it. But this guy just nails emotion in the slow-mo. And I thought I was very impressed with that. Although I was very confused and maybe champ. Why does nobody have guns? Like they have interstellar spaceships with missiles and stuff. But then like when they get out man to man, they're doing hand to hand combat and with no guns. I'm like, what are y'all doing? It's like this strange combination of like uh, (laughs) sci-fi and Western. And so it's like, it's, it's a very bizarre combo, like the whole vibe of the world. Um, but you know, the performance in this performances in this, I guess it should go without saying with this cast, but I loved mm-hmm. Rebecca Ferguson as Lady Jessica. I love Jason Momoa as Duncan Idaho. Um, and Skellen Skarsgard as the main Harkonnen guy, the Baron. Holy oh, crap, yeah. is oh, he is he perfectly grotesque in this film? Like we just got done talking about, you know, bad villain in Bond. Uh, the villain in this is terrifying. Yeah, really. Yeah, I mean, and and even, you know, and again, I'll go back to some of the subtle touches. I mean, even the the bath that he's in, the 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 substance, it's like almost like a mix of tar and oil. And even those little shots where we get the close up of like the, you know, how how the how the two liquid substances are differentiated, like little things like that. It was just like the detail to that particular character creating him. Yeah, I really think, um, you know, I think that. You know, I think that this was an awesome job of establishing this world. I really think we're going to dive much more into some of the themes, um, you know, of the the novel themes that, you know, David Lynch never really brought to light in a cohesive way. I think we're going to get a lot more of that, but you could start to see it really set the table for some of those themes. I mean, we're even talking religious themes as well. Um, you know, you're talking about a messiah, essentially. There was a and... mention of a holy war. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so Evan, I'm shocked that David Lynch couldn't do something cohesively. This is a shocking development. <laughs> well, yeah, you you stepped away for a second when I mentioned that because we hadn't talked about the 1984 version, and I said, you know, I'd said that similar to the 1984 version, what Lynch did well was create some really stunning visual scenes, but hey, there was no cohesion to the story, and in this one. He takes his time. He allows to for those beautiful shots while also, you know, acknowledging a story that is moving, although it's moving maybe albeit a little slowly. So I watched this, as I mentioned, I watched it a second time when I got home from the theater because I, I felt like I was at like a seven and I felt like it deserved better than that. I felt like maybe, uh, first of all, there was these freaking teenagers talking in the back of the theater. I wanted to go back there mm. and punch them. Uh, but like I, I got back and I just felt like I didn't get everything that I wanted to because I was so overwhelmed with information because I haven't seen the Lynch. I haven't read the novel. So I watched it again with subtitles at home and, it, and my appreciation grew for it tenfold. Uh, I mean, it, the technical stuff I appreciated on the big screen, but the story elements really sunk in more uh, as I watched it the second time. And the other thing I noticed was, you know, again, to the shots, you know, Kaladin, their ocean planet is so like beautiful and lush. And I think that was shot in Norway. And then they, you know, when, when you get to Arrakis and the transition of just the dune planet, and you look at it, comparing it to Kaladin, it really just helps like make you even more depressed about the the beautiful place that this, um, you know, Atreides family came where they were and where they are now. And obviously we see what happens, you know, uh, with, to the family where it essentially falls apart throughout the course of the film. It just sort of makes it even more tragic. And, um, and that goes back to Denis Villeneuve using, you know, his, his skill as a director and his team of cinematographers and, and the DPs and anyone who was involved with the technical aspects of this film uh, deserves to be nominated for a lot of Oscars in my opinion, oh, yeah. um, because it really carried the film, even in those parts where it was slower, but that second watch really gave me a whole new appreciation for the film. Um, and I have it as an 8.5 out of 10. It's one of my top five films of the year so far. Yeah, I, uh, I had, uh, I had it as an 8.52. I was like bordering between an eight and 8.5. I thought, you know, you know, how it looked was just warranted a good rating altogether. I think the reason I was kind of wavering between an eight and an 8.5 was just what Mike said. It's hard to really, 
put your like stamp and give a nine or a 10, whatever your scale works on a movie. That's not a full movie, you know, it's just tough to do that. But for a part one, I mean, it's one of the, I mean, it's, you couldn't ask for more. Um, and there's a, like I said, I'm excited. There's a lot more we're going to get to. We've not met the emperor. We don't even, we haven't even really been introduced into the war, the people who oversee all of these planets and they assign, assign which. Or the Fremen. You know, we haven't really met the Fremen too much either. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Um, you know, um, but so there's, there's some more characters, um, you know, to, to me. And um, yeah, I thought it was, you know, I'm between an eight and an 8.5, but uh, really, I mean, Mike, if you can see it in theaters. I he mean, wants to it's... talk about how Zendaya is not in the movie, right? <laughs> <laughs> how did you know? Yeah, I, uh, yeah, it, w- it would be great to meet the rest of the characters, including the characters who are apparently the main characters in the poster and the marketing of the movie. We don't even... Zendaya, okay. So Zendaya, uh, Zendaya was pretty heavily marketed as being like a, a big player in this movie. And then... The movie, which is two hours and 35 minutes long, features Zendaya for six minutes and about 14 seconds. And I get a stopwatch. Most of that she is does voiceover. start with her, though, to be fair. <laughs> most of it is just like voiceover with her just like turning to look in a vision. Like, so I, think I was a little... huge in the second part, though. I mean, she's she's going to be huge. And I remember we talked about Infinity War and Endgame. And how you didn't get some major characters in Infinity War because they were holding them for Endgame. We're going to, I mean, it's not a direct comparison, but we're going to get more of those characters. Yeah. All right. Mike, did you give us a grade? Um, I, I really liked it. I thought the writing was great. I really respected the direction and I thought the acting was solid and the world building was great. But yeah, it was, just the fact that there it was still a part one like that is the part of it just left me a little unsatisfied there. And like you mentioned, some of the slowness uh, and the fact that Zenday wasn't in it enough. Uh, so I give it an A minus. I thought it was a good, a good start to a definitely a, what's going to be a new, a pretty, pretty big new world for, for lovers of sci-fi and fantasy. All right. Well, that's Dune. It's available on HBO Max, but like we said, if you have the capability to go see it in theaters, would highly recommend seeing it on the biggest screen possible. Uh, I wish I could have seen it on IMAX, honestly, because I bet that would have been amazing, but uh, uh, really positive reviews. It's uh, getting a lot of hype, and it it definitely lives up to it. Uh, A true spectacle of a film that I think does uh, does justice to the, uh, the iconic novel by Frank Herbert, so definitely go check it out, but that's going to do it for today's episode of the second day film podcast. We appreciate all you film fans for sticking with us. Uh, we say it at the end of every pod, but we'll try and get back sooner than, you know, once a month pace, but you know, we're busy, man. There's a lot going on. We all got lives. There is a pandemic going on. So, uh, you know, stuff comes up, um, but we appreciate everyone for listening. If you could please like rate and review the podcast, check out our old episodes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple podcasts, Check us out on Facebook, Second Day Film Podcast. We're all on the internet. You can hit us up there as well. Uh, we always love talking to films. So uh, anything else you guys want to add before we sign off here? Hey, Champ, have you ever seen The Pacific, the HBO miniseries? Uh, no. Oh, man, Rami Malek's so good. Nate, you should go watch it. <laughs> okay, I'm not saying he's a bad actor. He's just not my favorite, okay? Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm going to get enough. Remy Malik uh, hate for the rest of my life here. Uh, but yeah, let's get out of here, guys. We're, we're probably approaching an hour. So, again, thank you, film fans, for listening. We appreciate it. Uh, we will talk to you next time. And thank you so much for listening. And as always, we will see you 